He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney. He is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, July 1, 2023. Happy summer. Gosh, we have a great show. Bob Seidman, he's a smart guy. He went to Stanford, stayed in the Bay Area at the dawn of Silicon Valley, made his name as a software detective, charges top dollar for his expert testimony. You will find out why. He's good. He's smart. A lot smarter than Mike Lindell. Mike Lindell, who is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, and we talk about that with Bob Seidman, but he's made a lot of money with his My Pillow, and he's got a lot of fame from his protestations that the elections are all rigged and various conspiracy theories. He loves being in the limelight, be it on Jimmy Kimmel, Late Night TV, his own Lindell TV, Steve Bannon's podcast. Heck, just this week, he was saying some incredible things with Steve Bannon, talking about what motivates him. Listen to this. It's that old-time religion, don't you know? Absolutely. I gave it all the Lord on February 18, 2017, and and uh, that's all you can do. Just give it, give it up. And uh, and uh, it's off of me. And you know, I like to say I'm very, I'm always optimistic. And uh, because I know who wins in the end. And we, and uh, we're, you know, and it's all been on God's timing. You know, Steve, it never, it never surprises me the stuff I'm hearing that I hear every day. Just yesterday I, on my show, I had this gal from New York, and I found out here's how. We're, we're not hearing all the all the stuff that's going on or that even went on in our country. Here in New York had 357,000 more votes than voters in the 2020 election. Now, I just found that out. I thought I was finding everything out. I found it all back then. And I'm, I thought Pennsylvania was the only state that pulled that stunt. Okay. Maybe these are end times. I hope not. But if there are enough Mike Lindells out there, it could be. Is he a con artist? Does he believe what he's selling? That's what we talk about with Bob Seidman coming up. There was a contest that Lindell announced, a symposium. Remember in South Dakota, Tina Peters went, uh, Shoshana, America's mom from Colorado went, Lauren Boebert, that kind of person. You know what I'm talking about. Boebert wasn't there, but Tina Peters sure was. And so was our guest, Bob Seidman, because he thought, I might win this prize. Lindell says, it's five million bucks if you prove that I'm wrong on this. And Seidman did it, even though he's a Trumper. He was. Wait till you hear his evolution. Maybe not as fast as mine, but let's cut him some slack. It starts with proving Mike Lindell was full of crap. Here, let CNN explain the situation to you. And Bob Seidman, toward the end, says he's not really expecting to see the money. We talk about that. 
there's a five million dollar prize for anybody that can that, that can prove the election data that can, that I have from the 2020 election is false. When you had the idea for the prove Mike wrong challenge, did you have an expectation you might have to pay out five million dollars? No, no, why would I have that? Because I already had validated. So you didn't have any concerns that someone might win the prove Mike wrong challenge? No, because they would have to show it wasn't from 2020 and it was. You know. <laughs> so I talked to Mike Lindell very briefly today. He has vowed to me that he is going to be taking this to court. You know, I also talked to the attorneys who worked on this. They're very hopeful that the payout is going to come from this. Robert Zeidman was a little less hopeful. He's like, mm. I think Mike Lindell is going to drag this on. I'm not really sure if I'm ever going to see this money. So there you heard first the Prove Mike Wrong offer by Lindell. And then his testimony at deposition, which was pretty screwed up making excuses like somebody else we know in courts of law. But Lindell's kind of undeterred. He keeps going, even though he's been proved wrong by by Bob Zeidman and by other smart people. He was backed with Steve Bannon, another con artist, a MAGA con artist, who has a very popular podcast. And Lindell is selling the fact that on August 16th and 17th, he's having another conference where all truths will be revealed, only he's not making that uh, offer again for $5 million because Zeidman was pretty good. Listen to what he told Steve Bannon this week. Correct? It, it's, it's the plan to save our country. It really is, everybody. It's August 16th and 17th. Uh, this is the Election Crime Bureau Summit. The plan will be revealed and all this other stuff people are talking about. We got to do this in the elections and we got to do that. This plan has never been done before. It's never been even suggested before. And you and when you get up on August 18th, you're going to wake up and go, this is the greatest thing ever. I don't care if you're a Democrat, Republican or who you are. You're going to have so much hope. You know, this Lindell stuff would be funny if it wasn't so serious. Seth Myers and Jimmy Kimmel, gosh, those guys had fun with him. I miss Comedy Central and the late night shows. Jimmy Fallon, too. But we can go back in time before we talk to Bob Seidman. Recall Mike Lindell and the fool that he is. Seth Myers is one of my favorite. I'm going to play him for you. I think the Trump team, consisting of Lindell and a bunch of other losers, is coming undone in a court of law. There are lots of podcasts that give me hope. Smart lawyers who analyze the rules of evidence. I think I'm good. I like reinforcement, confirmation bias. I'm writing about that for the Colorado Sun. I also like to laugh, and I also want you to know who Bob Seidman is. So before we get into the Lindell takedown, I tell you a lot about the metamorphosis of this interesting man named Robert Seidman. He said, call him Bob. I'll do that. First, let's give a listen to Seth Meyers roasting Mike Lindell. This was shortly after the last midterms where the Trump-led MAGA crew pretty much lost again. Although, damn it, they have the House. Lauren Boebert in the majority. Is she one step above or below the my pillow guy, Mike Lindell. What about Tina Peters? Anyway, I'm not down with any of them. Get the pun? By the way, 
I watched Courtney Johnston on Jeopardy. The new first lady didn't do that great, but better luck as first lady of Denver. Interesting to watch that if you can catch it on YouTube. But right now, catch Seth Meyers with Mike Lindell. Then after that, we're going to have the interview with Bob Zeidman and, of course, our troubadour. He has the perfect song to address current events. It's called Eddie Don't Quit. We've played it before, but Vladimir Putin, he had a little bit of a mutiny from Prigozhin, but he's still standing because Vladdy don't quit. Donald Trump has various people close to him, turning state's evidence. How is it going to end? He's not going to quit. Toward the end of my interview with Dave, not an interview, my great discussion with Dave Gunders, he kind of hits on how it's going to end for Eddie Don't Quit in the song, Vladimir Putin in Russia right now, and Donald J. Trump in America, who's been caught cold in Jack Smith, Alvin Bragg, Bonnie Willis. They've got this, and I've got their back. Listen to Seth Meyers, and then Bob Seidman, and then Dave Gunders, our troubadour. What a great show we have. Episode 155 rocks. Thanks for listening. Tell a friend, subscribe. Five stars, please. Take it away, Seth Myers. You know, going into these midterms, I was never nervous. I knew anything was possible. I was bracing for the worst, but one thing that made me feel better was knowing that we had patriots out there making sure our elections were running smoothly. Patriots like my pillow CEO, Mike Lindell, who <laughs> announced before the election that his team would be monitoring every race across the country for fraud through his website, which has, as you would expect, a ridiculous name, frankspeech.com. We're going to be watching every race. We're going to have the real-time crime desk going at frankspeech.com, everybody. You can watch me there tomorrow night. Um, We are tracking every race by cyber. I want all the bad guys out there to know, through the Edison report, we are watching, and we also have another way to watch what's going on with the computers and the machines. So... I'm putting them all on notice, Steve. They're all on notice. Hear that, bad guys? You are on notice. (laughs) Mike Lindell is tracking every race by cyber. (laughs) Why is all of his computer lingo 30 years old? We're tracking the bad guys by cyber and using AOL Instant Messenger to find out their age, slash, sex, slash, location. Lindell always talks like he's being forced to write a science fiction novel at gunpoint, but I I don't know anything about science fiction. Well, then I guess this is goodbye, Lindell. There were robots and machines who were using cyber to be our bad guys. And mankind's only hope was the Edison Project, led by the fearless astronaut, Frank Speech. So Lindell said he was tracking every race through cyber. He even said during a live stream on election night, when the host tried to wrap things up, that he would stay there and keep tracking votes all night. I think Mike is back. Mike, we were starting to make up wrap-up comments for the evening. What do you think? I didn't know we were wrapping up comments. I got General Flynn coming on, and we got a video of Kerry Lake 40 minutes ago. (laughs) I don't know if you guys... I'm staying up all night till we win. I don't think it's great advertising that a pillow salesman never seems to want to go to bed. I'm pulling a back-to-back all night or anything not to put my head on that lumpy sack of wrenches. <laughs> they smell like burnt rubber. You won't be surprised to hear that on Tuesday, when it was clear the Democrats had vastly outperformed expectations, Republicans still had not taken control of the House or Senate as expected. Lindell let 
the world know he had found the bad guys who did all the fraud and stuff. By the way, see if you can follow any of this completely incoherent word vomit. I want to bring in Mike Lindell. Uh, Mike, you got some interesting results you wanted to share. Go ahead. Yeah, well, first of all, when you guys were talking before I was listening to you, who, who attacked our country and what is this all about? It's the CCP, the Uniparty, the Deep State, the Globalists, and now the Democrat Party joining with all of them. Um, here's what we have. In our real-time crime desk, if you have a graphic to put up, I'm going to show you just one of them, and this is Herschel Walker here. So we're watching these races. Vance was one. I believe they early on they were taking it, uh, taking Vance, and I think they just didn't put any injection because he totally overran the algorithm. We're watching these races, and it's like real-time crime. I call it a crime spike. And then you get these crime spikes. Jesus, dude. Mike Lindell's the only guy I can think of who would get cut off at Starbucks. <laughs> Sir, I think you've had enough macchiatos. Let me call you a cab. No, thanks. I'll just fly home. Real-time crime line. He's like McGruff if someone put meth in his kibble. <laughs> Here's a pretty good way to track how well the Democrats are doing. The better the night they have, the more incoherent Mike Lindell gets. In 2020, Lindell was like, there's fraud in the machines. Very simple. Now the Republicans, and specifically Trump, have gotten crushed again. He's spinning out and vomiting a bunch of meaningless nonsense at lightning speed like an Amazon Echo that got dropped in the toilet. <laughs> hey, Alexa, can you give me an election update? China's ECP unit party global deep state dominion CIA voting machines hacked our cyber crime spike through the real time cyber crime cyber desk cyber 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 It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblaw.com. LLC.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Hey, being a lawyer is a matter of judgment. You have to know the law, the facts, but good judgment is essential. If you don't understand how Donald Trump is culpable for the crimes committed in his name, then I question your judgment. I have the good judgment to question Donald Trump. If you want a lawyer like that, instead of a knucklehead who believes in the MAGA propaganda, call Craig, 303-734-7156, 303-734-7156. I am Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Gosh, I get to meet some very fascinating people through my broadcasting career. Robert Zeidman, I'm calling him Bob because he gave me permission 
and I feel like I know him well. I've done some research. Bob Seidman, thanks a lot for doing my show. Craig, thanks for having me on the show. I don't know everything about you, but I believe you are a Philly kid. Is that right? Of course, I read your Wikipedia page, among other things. <laughs> yeah, Wikipedia is not always right, but that, that time it was. I grew up in Philly. And were you a sports fan? You know, I hate to say it, I was not. Um, I always blame it on the fact that the Phillies were terrible, the Eagles were terrible. But by the time I got to high school, the Flyers were Stanley Cup champions. Uh, so I don't really have an excuse. I was thinking more of your 76ers because we're about the same age. You're probably finishing a high school or whatever in the mid-70s when Dr. J was playing there. It culminated, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, Bill Walton, my guest a few shows ago. Anyway, we've got the Nuggets. I've talked enough about basketball. I want to talk about science because you went on to Cornell Pretty damn good school. My sister was going there, veterinary school at the time. How oh, okay. did, did you go all four years to Cornell undergrad? Yeah, I did. Four years, yeah. What a time that was. And again, just, you know, kind of fishing in the blind. I don't know if you knew my sister, Nancy, Nancy Silverman, or her future husband, Alan Kay. But what about the really famous Keith Oberman? And Bill Maher. Oh, yeah. Bill Maher was there as I, well. Did uh, you know those guys? I did not. I know they went there, and Coulter also. Oh, my um, goodness. Yeah, they were all three. Can you imagine three of them hanging out at Cornell? I kind of can. I, I don't, I'm not an expert on Ithaca, and uh, you didn't stay around there. You went for an advanced degree at Stanford, right? Yeah, you know, after four years in upstate New York, everybody at Cornell, if they were getting an advanced degree, wanted to go to Stanford, you know, for the sunshine and the beaches and uh, and the beautiful Bay Area. And yeah. I was fortunate enough to get in. Right. And you and I are embarking on professional careers. I left law school in 1981. That's about the time you were starting your professional endeavors. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. 81, I went to Stanford for a year and a half. I was kicked out of the PhD program and went into the real world and started earning a living. Doing what? I was actually designing semiconductor chips, you know, integrated circuit microchips. What kind of future um, would there be in that? <laughs> I don't know. Um, you know, there definitely was a good one, but I, I get bored really easily, so I moved from semiconductor chips to computer systems, and uh, at one point considered becoming a filmmaker and a novelist, but I ended up consulting, designing computer hardware and software, and then eventually getting into expert witness work. I have to tell you, your writing is superb. I'm sure that serves oh, you well you. as an expert witness, but your piece on LinkedIn it was interesting, but the writing was fantastic. Same with the Politico piece that brought you to almost everybody's attention. But back, I mean, that's a side hustle. I write for the Colorado Sun, yeah. and I take pride in it, but I never thought to make a living as a writer. I have to think, and maybe I'm just projecting, that you were in, on the beginning, in Silicon Valley, semiconductors, 
you're a super smart guy, you work hard. You must have made it big, did you? <laughs> well, I did well, but, you know, Silicon Valley is a strange place. I, you know, I live in Las Vegas now. I moved here four years ago, but I was 40 years in Silicon Valley. And, you know, over the years, well, first of all, you know, I felt like I'd come in at the tail end of Silicon Valley because Apple computer was already big. But now that I've, now people look at me as a pioneer in Silicon Valley, even though I got there probably 10 years after it started really taking off. And the other thing is, you know, people started telling me how successful I was, and I didn't understand what they were talking about, you know, financially and and with my reputation. And I really didn't, I would say to them, no, no, I don't know what you're talking about. But I realized that when you live in the bubble of Silicon Valley, you start comparing yourselves to the Mark Zuckerbergs and the Sergey Brins and the Elon Musks, and you think, wow, I've, I'm a complete failure. And it was only... You know, basically, when I moved out of Silicon Valley to Las Vegas, the people, you know, that I suddenly realized that, yeah, I have done very well. Well, you are the father of a field, a subspecialty that I know well. To be a good trial lawyer, you have to work with the experts. And somehow you latched on to the idea, if I master how these things work, then I can detect fraud or anything people want to know. It's sort of like... Uh, and stop me if I'm wrong, but somebody who's proficient in firearms, they can totally assemble and disassemble a complicated weapon because they've learned it. Mm -hmm. They have a talent for that, and that's what you did with computer software and all these technologies to see if anything's gone wrong or who messed with what. Am I right? Yeah, you are. I mean, I appreciate that. I invented the field of software forensics. And the way that came about, like like most of the things in my life that I've succeeded at, was by accident. I had just come off starting a high-tech e-learning company uh, where I was trying to put uh, you know courses on the internet, and that was very new at the time. What was, it, I, I what was that it called? What what year was that? That was around 1999 and 2000, right? Well, what happened was we got it was called the Chalkboard Network. And I was taking courses from university professors and experts in their field and making very sophisticated courses online. And unfortunately, the, you know, the, the dot-com bust happened. We had gotten funding about a month before the dot-com bust. And so we had enough funding for go, to go for about six months. And in six months, the economy was in the tank. So I kept the company going for another but another year, year and a half, two years. And we were about to do a contract with Rockwell Collins, a big defense contractor. And then 9-11 happened. And they basically said to us, everything was on hold while we figure out you know, what, what's going to happen in the world. So at that point, I had to shut the company down. Did you get paid? Um, you know, I got paid, but it was a one-person company by that point. I had to let everybody go. But that one contract from Rock Rockwell Collins was going to launch us back again. It was going to be a really big contract. Uh, but and they were about they were going to sign uh, in October, and then in September is when obviously 9/11 happened. Right. There was a lot of competition in that field. In fact, there was a Denver company called E College. I don't know if you heard about that. Oh, okay. Or, but 
How, how did you make uh, lemonade out of lemons? How did you get in the field of being an expert witness? Well, actually, I went to a professor that I knew at Stanford. He was not my professor, but I met him. I worked for his startup company that had folded. Really nice guy named Mike Flynn, and he's a very well-known computer pioneer. And I said to him, hey, do you want to do a course for my e-learning company? And he said, okay. And as things started to go south, he said, hey, uh, I'm an expert in this case where I'm testifying, but I need someone to do all the research on it. Would you like to do it? And I said, well, I'm really busy. I don't know. Let me think about it. And then he told me how much it paid. And I said, I'm in. This is for me. And if I can be so bold, who was uh, bankrolling it? A big company? Uh, Deep Pockets? Uh, Yeah. Well, it was a company, Cirrus Logic, which has been bought. At the time, they were like a medium-sized company. I'm going to say maybe a $100 million company. And I think they got bought. There were a whole bunch of acquisitions in Silicon Valley, but they were a semiconductor chip company. Oh, but by the way, then I worked for Texas Instruments after that. And there, they, they that was a no-holds-barred patent case. They hired, I mean, I was flattered. They hired some of the best people I'd ever worked with, flew us to Dallas, kept us in a Marriott Hotel, well-fed and, and you know, beautiful circumstances, fully paid, Everybody, you know, I was there with a Stanford professor, a guy who started his own company, a guy who went on to start four or five companies. Um, oh, no wonder you've been a Republican. Yeah. We're going to get to that, by the way. But uh, <laughs> yeah. my my partner, who was uh, an insurance defense attorney for a long time, did some asbestos uh, defense work. He had a CLE called the Karen feeding of an expert witness and <laughs> just how to oh, okay. wine and dine you guys because... When you are good, and I bet you've had some amazing successes, kind of the sky's the limit, and people say, go ahead, stay at the finest hotel or the room service, and then, can I be so bold? And there's probably on the record a lot of places, Bob Seidman, and I get to call you Bob now, how much of it, how much, and I'm not asking for any friends and families rate or anything, I have a deep pocket client, how much does it cost your retainer agreement for you to be an expert on my case? Well, my retainer is, is fairly low. It's $10,000. But what I find is if somebody balks at that, I really don't want them in a client, as a client because they could pay anywhere from fifty to 100000 to a quarter million, um, and on a rare occasions, even more than that. But but let me tell you something. At the TI case, I would stay at a Days Inn, and then sometimes the lawyers would say, "What are you staying at Days Inn?" And I say, "But I just need a bed and a Wi-Fi connection." And they'd say, "No, no, you know, we're going to put you in the Marriott." But here's the other thing that happened. Um, I give you an example. But sometimes we don't get treated right, which is okay because we get paid well. But one time, the lawyer in this case, in the TI case, called a bunch of us up at. Uh, like midnight, we would work around the clock, literally. Some of us wouldn't sleep. You know, we'd take turns sleeping. And one of the lawyers said, we need to meet you downtown in downtown Dallas. We were in the outskirts near Richardson. And we need to meet you at 6 in the morning, and this is like already midnight. So we said, okay. We got a few hours sleep. We drove about an hour downtown, 
It's six in the morning. He said we had to have an emergency meeting in this beautiful law office. And I see a box of donuts and some drinks. And so I head over and start to grab one of the donuts. And before my hand can touch it, the lawyer says, no, no, that's for the important people coming after you. Oh. But, you know, you maybe you've dealt with this early in my career when I was young, you know, relatively young. I started doing this in my, well, in my 40s, which is pretty young for an expert witness. And you're pretty, you're pretty good at it. So far, you've dodged the question a little. I understand 10K <laughs> to have a conversation, but I'm sure. guessing under cross-examination, for your time in court, going to a strange city like Dallas or whatever, and believe me, it gets hot there in the summer. I've been there on a case. Anyway, I bet you're charging $850 an hour. Am I close? Well... Let's say that's in the ballpark. I don't what want to give it? the exact number. Is it, is it over you know, that? I, I don't want to give my exact number because the thing is, you know, um, yeah, it just doesn't feel right doing that. But I, I, do I know you well. won seven grand in a recent poker tournament, probably more since that article <laughs> was written. Anyway, I'm not going to get too personal. I'm in the general range, and it's all me kind of pumping you up in front of the jury that's listening to say. You are a professional, and people yeah. from all over the world probably are hiring you to be an expert witness, and millions of dollars depend on what you have to say, and it all comes down to your reputation. Tell tell some war stories where your conclusion won the day and your client a lot of money. I bet you have several. Yeah, well, uh I'll tell you my, I can tell you my most famous case, and that was the Facebook case that was made into the movie The Social Network. Wow. So Keep going. I hope you've seen it. Yeah, I know those Twinklevoss brothers or something like that. Yes, Is that... yes, Winklevoss, okay, yeah. Okay, I was close. So to your audience, I'll, I'll just tell you, I'll tell you and them. First of all, I think the writer of that is, and director was Aaron Sorkin, or maybe just the writer but Aaron Sorkin is one of the best writers in Hollywood history, and it's a wonderful movie. And it's about how uh, Mark Zuckerberg was accused of stealing code from these twins, the Winklevoss twins at Harvard. And what I can tell you is I had just created my tools for finding whether code was copied when I got a phone call from a lawyer at a big firm in Silicon Valley. Uh, Ora Carrington was the firm. Uh, and I'll mention my good friend, Neil Chatterjee. He was the guy who called me up. He's he's now one of the most recognized IP attorneys in the country. IP and, uh, being intellectual the, property, right? Yes, thank okay. you. Okay. I take a guess. And so Keep going. I got off. He said that he had heard that I had this tool that I'd used a few times in some cases that can find out, can determine if code was copied. And I said, yeah. And uh, so he said that, he had a he had a uh, client that needed this, and it was there was there was the cost didn't matter. And when I got off the phone with him, I talked to my wife, and I said, "Wow, I just got the biggest case of my career, and I'm going to be working a lot and making a lot of money." I said, "But the problem is, I'm not sure if this company can pay. Have you ever heard of a company called the Facebook?" And she said, "No, never heard of it." Um, so. Now, is, that, is that a scene in the movie? Because I did watch it, but I'm going to watch it again. Are you in the movie? Well, I joke I joke that I'm in the movie when Mark Zuckerberg holds up 
a sheet of paper at his deposition and says, uh, you know, he holds up a sheet, some sheets of paper and says, I didn't steal your code. I joked that if you zoom in on it, that's my report with my name on it. Nice. And that's what I found. What happened was the Winklevoss twins, who, by the way, were very wealthy, very, I mean, their dad was uh, a Wall Street uh, stockbroker, I believe, or financial analyst. But were, were, they, they hired, were they big and good-looking as portrayed in the movie? I've seen pictures. You know, the, you know, I'm not one to judge whether they were good-looking, but they were big, strong guys. I mean, they looked like they looked in the movie, yeah. Okay. Keep going. I never met them. Okay. I never met them, and I only met Mark Zuckerberg once in the hallway, and all I know is he was the kid, he was the nervous kid in the hoodie. Um, I mean, he really was not very impressive, he, you know, when he first started, he was just a very nervous kid who, who I think, never expected to be this successful. What year are we talking about? This was like 2004. Wow. So yeah. did you get doors so, to keep going? Yeah. Even, so, so I'll tell you you, what you can to... even ruin the movie. Does Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> yeah. do things for out for him? Does he make a living? Keep going. Yeah, I heard that he's doing okay, but I haven't followed up with him. Right. So so here's what happened. I I spent so first of all the lawyers gave me every single a copy of the hard disk of every single computer at Facebook. Every single one. That was about 10 of them. And they said search these these hard drives to find anything that looks like code and compare it to the code that the twins at Harvard had created. Now time out. Did they physically deliver this on a truck or something? Or how did No, they were just like they were just like they I think they probably you know they probably shipped it to me and left it on my doorstep. Just ten disk drives. You know, they fit in a little box. I hope you are good on chain of custody. I'm sure you are for eight hundred and fifty <laughs> bucks an hour. But keep going. Well, so what happened is I examined the discs. I spent about two weeks, uh, maybe ten hours a day, seven days a week examining, but running my tools and then I Right, you know, nowadays the tools have a lot of automatic add-ons, so you can automate a lot of the process. But at that time, my tools were very basic, so I had to spend a lot of time reviewing what the tools came up with. And I wrote a report, and I said that Mark Zuckerberg did not take any code, did not copy any code from the Winklevoss twins. And the other side, the Winklevoss twins, they hired a team of experts from a big company, and their report said... Well, we had, you know, a dozen people working on this. There's 99,000 files, source code files. You know, that's computer code. And we could only examine 4,000 of them. And in those 4,000, we didn't find anything, but we feel pretty confident that the copying is in the other 95,000 files somewhere, and we need more time to examine them. And my report came in and said, I've examined all 99,000 files, and there isn't a single instance of copying. And right after that, they settled the case. Nice. Now, what would have happened if you saw telltale signs of copying? Well, so that's one thing that I tell my clients up front and everyone who works for me. I tell them, we may not be able to support your case. That if you say there was no copying and we find copying, we'll tell you. Now, I don't have to tell anybody else. But if, I, if I'm under oath at a deposition or a trial I, and they ask me that question, I have to answer truthfully. And so I've had clients where I had to give them the bad news that our analysis uh, showed that they were in the wrong, either a defendant or a plaintiff. 
It's almost like hiring a polygraphist. You, although I expect your evidence is more admissible in a court of law, but I send people for a polygraph report. Some people believe mm-hmm. in it. I kind of do, but a lot of things can be learned. And occasionally, my former FBI guy will say, "Hey, this guy's being deceptive." I tell them I don't tell the other side. It's sort of like that. If you find some deception or copying, what do you just tell the lawyer? Hey, your client. It appears that he he did some copying here of intellectual property. Right. Well, you know, one thing that I've written about extensively. In fact, I was testifying in court last week in Texas on a patent case, and the lawyers brought up this passage from my book. Uh, I've written a book about software and intellectual property, patents, copyrights, trade secrets. And they, they actually asked the other expert in the case, they said, do you d- agree with Mr. Zeidman where he wrote that many experts will lie to support their clients, something to that effect? And and I thought, where did I write that? But I looked at the book, and my lawyers looked at the book, and I realized it came from sev- several paragraphs where I said, Unfortunately, some a lot of experts will lie, and I won't. Um, so I, I got up and I read the whole paragraph. But I've talked about that a lot of times. Uh, you know, experts will think that they're hired by somebody to support their case. And my feeling is, I'll support my client's case as much as I can, but I won't cross the line into saying something that's not true. See, that gets back to you being plenty successful. Maybe not Mark Zuckerberg successful, but you don't have to do those <laughs> sorts of shady things, right? And I like your ego, too. It's healthy, and it's well-deserved. Your political piece was fantastic, and you brag I literally wrote the book on this. And again, give a plug yeah. for your book. When did you write it? And uh, is it a go-to piece for people in your field? Yeah, it is. Um, so it's called the Software IP Detectives Handbook. It's got a, it's got a section uh, for lawyers that explains about how computer software works. It's got a section for computer programmers on how the law works. And then it's got a section on mathematics that I that I say nobody reads, but but I was, you know, I, I loved math since I was a kid, and I was just so happy to be able to develop the math for these tools and then explain it in the book. Now I like math too. I got a little lost with algebra, trigonometry. That was my smart sister, the one I referenced at Cornell. She became oh, a veterinarian. Yeah, yeah. But I do know Vegas crap tables, and I bet you do too. And I know the. Various odds of two die landing on any number, 36 possibilities. Is that sort of what you do, only to a greater extent? Well, you know, I, so I, I stay away from every, everything but poker. I had a bad experience. Actually, I think a good, a good bad experience, a learning experience when I was young. Uh, I went to Atlantic City a few times, lost money, and then I went to a carnival this was the worst thing. I went to a carnival and that, you know, one of these traveling carnivals and it's this thing. If you can roll a ball over a hump and get it to stay in the middle of two humps, you do it 10 times in a row and you get a prize. And I did it nine times and I could not do it the 10th. And the, the guy who ran it said he felt sorry for me. So if I could do it the 10th time, he'd give me all my money back plus a prize. So I can tell you, I did it 
I was there all night. I went back the next day. I went to the bank and took out, I think, my graduation money and some money that I collected from students to to give uh, to get a, a present for a teacher. I mean, we're talking about like eight hundred dollars, which to me was the most I'd ever had in my life. And I I think I spent the whole thing on. I was just so scared. The more money I put in, the more I wanted that money back. And I learned years later, by the way, that it's a scam. They have a pedal that they operate to change the uh, angle of this device. So you can do it nine times, and you can't do it the tenth time. Honestly, I, I don't know if you're laying down or not, but I think this might be helpful, Bob, and explain maybe your vote for Trump twice in a row. But I'm, I like you, and I think that <laughs> anybody could see that pedal story coming and I feel sorry. Was this? Have you have you ever thought this was like a paranormal dreamlike situation? Did it really happen? You blew eight hundred bucks on a carnival barker kind of thing. I, I was just sick. I mean, I was really how old were Ill, you? And I how had, old were you? Yeah, I think I was uh, sixteen or seventeen, and I, I went to my dad. Look, my dad was. Uh, it was a great guy, and he had more confidence in me than anyone on the planet. And But I knew I had to tell him, and I went to him and told him. And he was calm. He said he learned a lesson. I think he reimbursed me but said I had to pay him back. And, uh, you know, it worked out okay, but I was so scared going to tell him that I'd lost all this money. So I don't gamble, but I do play poker. So, you're, you know, you might be thinking, well, that's gambling, but... You know, I don't know. I have mixed feelings these days. I think there's a lot of luck, but a lot of skill in poker. Uh, so I'm still playing poker. That's right. the only gambling I do. Now, I was just going for the math metaphors, but God, I think I yielded a, a gold strike there. I understand you <laughs> a lot better. I, I want to know about your parents. Brag on them. I bet you loved your parents, right? Oh, sure. Well, my dad was one of the smartest guys I ever met. Tell he us about him. What, what was his name? Oh, Morris, although uh, he went by Moish, which is of the course. Yiddish version I of Moishke. I, I had a dog yeah, named yeah. Uh, Moses that we called Moishke, but Maurice, okay. yeah, you go by Moses. Uh, so tell me about your father, Moishke. Sure, sure. So uh, he was a great guy. Um, he, you know, he, was, he, he fought in World War II. He came out of the war and decided, this is what people did back then, they were going to start a business. People didn't go to college. College was if you wanted to be a professor, uh, that was about it. You wanted to be a professor or a research scientist. So he went out and started a business. He serviced air conditioning units. He actually, he, it was a small business, but he um, installed the air conditioning at the original Philadelphia Mint. That was his biggest job. Nice. Yeah, really smart guy. Now I got to tell you, he worked for himself. Um, the you know one lesson I learned from him. Well, first of all, he read he read a lot. Um, you know he uh, he was self taught, but he knew he knew history. He knew Jewish history, American history. In fact, every Sunday we would uh, jump into bed with him and my mom in the morning and read the newspapers. I mostly read the comics, but he would give us these lectures about 
Jewish history and American history, mostly. Where was he born? And they were fascinating. Where was Moise He was born? born in Philly. Nice. He was born in Philly, but his parents were from uh, Poland. They emigrated from Poland. Yeah, my old man was born in Denver, and his old man was born in Denver. But if you go back, it's the Pale of Settlement, Poland, that sort of thing. But you would yeah, never yeah. say you're Polish, yeah. you were Jewish, right? Right. Actually, my grandmother refused to speak Polish. I mean, she didn't, you know, she was treated pretty poorly in Poland, came here as a young girl. She refused to speak Polish or even talk much about Poland. Spoke Yiddish, I bet. She spoke, interestingly enough, she spoke mostly English. She was nice. really proud of English. But my grandfather on my mother's side, my parents, my grandparents on my mother's side, they spoke mostly Yiddish. And how about you? You know, I studied German. And because of that, when I hear Yiddish, I understand it. But when I try to speak it, I can't speak so it. So you can speak a Bissell. And I'm no expert yeah. on it. I just learned yeah, it exactly. from my parents. Who could uh, my dad can understand it? But back to you in Philadelphia and Moishke, your dad, he, he started putting in air conditioning. The Philly Mint, you know, the Denver Mint is the building just west of the Denver oh, Courthouse. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so we've got that going for us. But you've got Ben Franklin and all of that. What a great city Philly was, and yeah, I yeah. don't, I don't yeah, know if you ever get I'm, back there. Uh, once in a while, but it's been a while. You know, I, 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 it hurts a little bit to say this, but the one of the lessons, I, well, first of all, one of the lessons I got, some of the lessons are great that I got from my dad. Read as much as you can. Learn as much as you can. Knowledge is power. Um, understanding history was really important. Uh, do the best job you can. Always be ethical in everything you do. One thing he told me is when he was home, he could say, he could make disparaging remarks about people and things. And, you know, when I was a kid, I'd get mad at him and he'd say, you know what? Uh, when I'm in my house, I can say whatever I want, but when I'm outside, I need to treat every single person with respect. And I learned that from him. No, 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 right? Don't talk bad about yes, people. Yes, exactly. Yes. Right. But, I, but I, house, I, I, I could know, be he, better at that, but keep going. Uh, was your dad, you know, uh, in the house, was he Orthodox? No, no, my grandparents were. He was not religious. It's interesting, he loved the Jewish people, and he knew more about Jewish history than anyone I knew, and about the Torah and the Talmud, but he never went to synagogue except for a bar mitzvah or a wedding. Not even on Yom Kippur? Nope, nope, I did. He made sure that I went. Well, it, you know, he wanted me to go. He never forced me. Interestingly enough, my brother became Orthodox. Uh, so he's now, you know, my brother's now Orthodox. How many siblings? I just have the one brother. But one, one thing I was going to say about my dad yes. is he was not good at business. And because of that, you know, we never lacked anything because my brother and I never wanted anything. It was always... We, it was, my father loved us, my mother loved us, we got a good education, and we never asked for anything. I mean, it never mattered to us. We didn't need material things, but we didn't have a lot of money. I found out after my dad passed. He passed when I was young, fairly young, like 24. Um, but one thing I found as part of that was that he didn't, he didn't negotiate well at business. And so for that reason, I said I was going to work for a big corporation where they'd pay me a salary and I didn't have to worry about where my income was coming from. 
And ironically, I, I work for myself, and I start businesses all the time, and I take big risks. But the one thing I learned that he never understood, unfortunately, is that if you're good at what you do, and you're ethical about it, and you take it seriously, you can charge a lot of money. And people will tell you you can't, but you can. And, you know, and I, what I feel is I always want to be in a win-win situation. When I negotiate a contract with somebody, I want them to feel like they got something good, and I want to feel like I got something good. And sometimes people, I've met people who say, you know what, if the other person isn't upset, then you didn't negotiate hard enough. But I don't believe that. I get paid really, really well, but, but I do the best job I can. And there have been times when I've gone to a client and said, I'm not going to charge you for this because I couldn't do what you asked me to do. It's, it's been very, very rare. I think maybe twice in my career. In fact, one time I told the client, I said, I'm not going to charge you because I don't think I did a good job, but here's the report that I came up with. And the client said, this is fantastic. Why wouldn't you charge for this? Um, but I, ha I hold very, very high standards. I bet you do. We haven't talked about your mother. And, uh, you know, I presume yeah. because my parents are dead and I, I left law school in 81. Is your mom alive? And did she influence you? She is. She yes. is. And she, uh, she lives in a, uh, an assisted living place in Las Vegas here. Mm -hmm. And we get to see her a lot. And I got to tell you, she's 96. And on her 95th birthday, well, when she came to Vegas, she started listening to more music and decided she loved Elvis. She'd never paid attention to Elvis, but she loved him and listened to him all the time. So on her 95th birthday, I got Elvis to pay her a visit and serenade her. Oh, boy. And, and did, she she, did she have her crew around for the surprise? And now she's the belle of the ball? Yeah, yeah, we, um, you know, my uh, my brother was there, some of his kids were there, actually uh, uh, her cousin was there, who just passed, unfortunately, but her cousin, oh, believe it or not, was a big name in uh, in uh, Democrat Democratic politics here in Las Vegas, and when we moved here, we got to know her. That's fascinating. Yeah, Ken O'Hara, your mother at that age, that's wonderful. Now, I wish my parents were around, but... Does she keep up with your adventures, including what we're eventually going to get around to? You brush with fame over the whole Mike <laughs> Lindell situation? I, I got to tell you, she does, and she is so proud of me. She can't, Nice. She still can't stop talking about it. My mother-in-law is alive, and she said, I'm going to live long enough to see Trump out of office, and now she wants to see him <laughs> in jail. It's motivating for a lot of older women who still have their senses, and we're going to get yeah, to it. But, yeah. uh, but what about your mom? What did she do? I bet she's a heck of a lady. You know, it's interesting. My dad was a big risk taker, and I think he took too many risks, like with business. My mom is very, very conservative financially. She doesn't take any risks, and she gets, for most of her life, she was very uh, just reserved, let me put it that way, and, and she worried a lot. And what's interesting is I got the best characteristics of both because I take risks, but I'm always reevaluating and reevaluating and reevaluating and, and deciding when a risk is too much and to shut it down, like a new business, for example. And it served me really well. So, 
you know, but for the first in the last few years, I I can't explain it, but my mom has finally relaxed in the last few years, and I I think she's gotten to the point at you know when she turned ninety, I think she decided finally that she doesn't need to worry about life because uh, you know she may as well start having a good time and not worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow. Nice. What a great attitude. Toward the end of my father's life, he stopped betting the games. I said, are you dead? And within a few (laughs) years, he was. But uh, somehow he he lost that bug. And uh, he used to take me to Vegas all the time when I was a kid. And that's sort of like your carnival dream. But I won't lay down and talk about that right now because you are the guy who saved democracy. And how do I I know that? Because that's the title of your piece in Politico. If that's not a clickbait, I don't know what is. The headline, How I Won $5 Million from the MyPillow Guy and Saved Democracy. It's your story. That's even better than the social network. Saving Democracy. Yeah, I guess. Well, maybe, maybe it'll be made into a movie, too. Lots of movies. I guarantee. And even as we speak, more indictments are apparently being prepared against Donald J. Trump, who I, you know, I voted for that guy in 2016, and I would deny it, but I was on the air, and people heard me, so I don't want to be a liar. But uh, Charlottesville mm. turned me around, so I have Rachmanis. You know that Yiddish word. I have some compassion for you, and I'm starting to see how you became a Republican. Maybe before we dive into Mike Lindell, can I just make some other presumptions? You tell me if I'm right or wrong. One, you're making a <laughs> sure. lot of your success. Well, they, are you married? Do you have kids? Tell me that. Um, yeah, I am married, and I have a son who's off on his own these days. Well, great. So it seems to me that you and your wife, you built a nice life. I read about you. She goes way back in Northern California. You're a newcomer. You went to Stanford. You stayed for 40 years. But you left because you got fed up with the high taxes, the crime problems. San Francisco doesn't have the appeal it used to have. And you relocated to Summerlin, uh, Nevada, what, about 45 minutes out of Vegas? So... I, I, Maybe I, like actually more like 15 to 20 minutes. All right, 15 to 20. See, I, I, I do it on bicycles, so it's a little longer for me. But the, the bottom line is you, you, you got fed up with the Democrats producing problems locally and in your state. You thought they went too far. You became a Republican and, uh, and you backed Donald Trump and then somehow you voted for him again. Uh, I'm just trying to understand how long you've been a Republican. Is it deeper than that? Were you active? Tell me. So, you know, I I used to get confused about what I was in college. I know in college I wasn't very political. When I was younger, what's funny, my dad and my brother would get into arguments about politics, and I had an uncle. (laughs) My dad was was a conservative Republican since, since I knew him. And I had an uncle. Who I mean, was a voting, voting for voting for Barry Goldwater. You remember that? I remember that election. Yeah, Dad yeah, yeah. Dad supported sure. Goldwater. I'm sure he did. Did you guys like Harlan uh, Specter? Now that was a moderate oh. Republican, a Jewish guy. I bet he was somebody your dad liked, or not? You tell me. Yeah, he did. And in fact, my brother worked on his campaign when he was a teenager. My brother was into politics when he was a teenager. 
Right. There were Republicans like Specter who weren't uh, at all right wing. It was a different day. Yeah. yeah. But go well, ahead. Well, you know, I think that Republicans and Democrats were closer back then. The, mm-hmm. the gap wasn't so wide. True. Um, you know, and and so when, you know, but all my friends in college were were Democrats and I wasn't political, so I never thought about it much. Uh, but over the years, I just became more conservative. I think part of what I saw is California went from being my favorite place to my least favorite place, mostly because it's it's kind of like, you know, when you have a breakup with a girlfriend or a boyfriend, I think. It's like y- your emotions are you hate that person. It's like, okay, they're not a bad person, but, you know, it's like you, you had all this hope that you were going to have this great relationship and you, then you ended up not. And in California, you know, like San Francisco, I loved San Francisco. I would stay there until four in the morning when I was single, partying with friends, and it never occurred to me to even worry about it. And now, you know, before I left, my wife and I stopped going out at night because, especially San Francisco, the traffic was horrible. But, you know, sidestepping human feces and human beings and needles and people doing drugs and accosting you for, you know, everybody who, every homeless person who asked me for money was generally nice about it. But when the third or fourth person comes up to you, it just doesn't feel good. I understand completely. And I, and I wrote my last column about uh, horrible crimes in Denver and the need to punish it, the need to deter it. And if you don't, it leads to, the Klan back in Colorado a hundred years ago. It leads to strong arm yeah, yeah, yeah. mafia types. And it's it's happened repetitively through history, but what you are saying is that all of the, the accumulation of indignities led you to believe these Democrats are on the wrong path. And I, I think that's a fair conclusion for a lot of people, but it just seems now that the GOP is all MAGA, that that's a much worse path. That is getting the Klan and the mafia involved. You don't want to do that. But that's what I think. You can speak for yourself, but did you ever get involved in Republican Party politics? Yeah, I was. I have been for a You know, I started getting involved maybe 10 years ago, and I'm involved here in Vegas. You know, first of all, I read your article, and I really appreciate it and agree with it. Uh, you know, one thing I'll say, and I think I've written about this, is I think a lot of the divisiveness in our society is coming from people with good intentions. That's the, that's the name of one of my novels. But, you know, I think people on the left, the far left, the far left Democrats are doing things like um, letting criminals go, for example. And to your point, this brings in people on the far right. If If you ask why, yeah, exactly what you're saying, if you ask why there are more hate crimes, and in fact, California hate crimes have skyrocketed, and you'd think, well, California is such a liberal, accepting place. Why is there hate crime there? And it's because it's such an accepting place. When they accept any kind of behavior, criminal or not, then some people start getting angry. And, you know, it, it generates this more and more hatred. So I think it's having a snowball effect in places like California. Right. And it's probably because of extremism. And to be fair, there have been some wacky lefties in California, and then that produces wacky righties. We're not going to put that on Reagan or Nixon necessarily, but look at, like, did down at, uh, 
what is that, uh, Chapman University where John Eastman teaches, that, that whole Claremont uh, organization, Orange County crap, you know, back in the day. California kind of gets you from both sides because it's such a big, magnificent state. I used to visit there as a kid, and I thought, mm -hmm. my gosh, this state has everything going for it. How can they screw it up? But it looks like they did, huh? Right, and I thought Silicon Valley. Uh, you know, I used to look at Detroit and Pittsburgh. You know, at, uh, if you do some research, Pittsburgh at the turn of the last century was was the Silicon Valley of America because it produced steel. And that was, that was an incredible technological accomplishment. And Detroit because of the automobiles. And now they're both run-down cities that, you know, that I mean, Pittsburgh maybe is on its way up, but still they're not prime cities that people want to live in. And I used to think, how could that, is that going to happen to Silicon Valley? And I thought, for years, I thought, no, it can't because we have everything we need here. And and we're creating this great technology. We've got great universities. We've got uh, great infrastructure, brilliant people. And now I see that they live in a bubble. And with everything that's happening in San Francisco, you've got what I call the Palo Alto elites, and I know them. Their people have so much money that they're willing to, you know, elect people in San Francisco who don't enforce crime like the district. Well, the new district attorney is better, by the way. Um, and I, I donated to her campaign, a Democrat, but she got rid of the guy before her who was just letting criminals go and not right. prosecuting anyone. And the Palo Alto elites, as long as the crime doesn't seep into Palo Alto, into their guarded homes and their private uh, security forces, they're okay with it. And I think that's a horrible way to live. Correct. And uh, there are so many complicating things. Hell, you're the scientist. Have you dived into AI, won't all of this be easily resolved once the singularity occurs? Am I right? Yeah, I know. that's interesting. I, I actually just wrote an article that's supposed to come out in American Spectator about AI. And I have followed AI since I was a kid. And the definition of AI has changed over the decades. And I think what we've got now, by the way, this is a whole another conversation, but the AI we've got now is the first time ever that AI is really accomplishing something, and it's an amazing technology. Before, it was just a dream that nobody could really produce anything practical. But now they can, and I don't think... The people who say AI is going to destroy civilization, is that's just silly. And the people who say it needs to be paused, people like Elon Musk says we need to pause work on it. Well, that's silly, too, because he wants to pause it so his company can get an advantage. But here's what I think AI is going to do. AI can't think right now. It just assembles facts. And here's where I think the danger of AI is. If, if there's a rumor on the Internet, like there's a rumor that the voting machines were hacked in the 2020 election, uh, hacked by China, and that rumor gets spread, AI, if you ask an AI where the voting machines hacked, it goes out and searches the web and finds all these people saying they were hacked. So it says, yes, they were hacked. And then that goes out on the Internet. And the next time an AI goes out and searches, it finds even more information saying the voting machines were hacked. So the big problem is if people are not thinking for themselves, AI will just amplify, I called it the avalanche, the AI avalanche. 
uh, it'll just create this avalanche of false information. The more the more false information is out there, the more it creates, and therefore there's there's more information. And so it's a snowball effect, right. avalanche. Effect. It, it reminds me of how Michael Cohen fixed the initial polling for Donald Trump with a, a methodology where you could vote over and over, like America Loves Talent yeah. or whatever, something. And, and they found a way to rig it. Uh, before we dive into Mike Lindell and all of that, I, I have to think that chat GPT would be good for your business, or maybe it's a whole other thing, but don't educators now have to figure out what is copycat work and what's original? Are you going to have a, a hand in that? You know, I, I don't know. It's, it's, been, it's been interesting. I've been working on the plagiarism detection, the copy detection for like 20 years now. And I kind of feel, you know, the way I am is that I'm moving into other things. And, you know, I'll put this out there for your listeners. If somebody comes to me with a business idea based on my forensics work, my plagiarism detection work, I will entertain it. But as far as me going and doing it on my own, it's, you know, I tried to do it years ago and it didn't take off. And I'm at a point in my life where I just don't want to work 24 seven to get something off the ground. Um, I yeah, want but other think people about to do the this. work for me. I, I, I'm not a scientist again, I'm just a lawyer, but with the singularity, don't we have immortality and then reverse aging? So you better think about your future, mister. <laughs> huh? Well, I, I will, you know, I was going to say that some people have come up to me, some, some very influential people who have said, you know, have asked me, you know, um, can I use my tools to detect AI and detect AI copying. And I can, but it, it's going to require a lot of development work. And it's just kind of like, I, I feel like moving on, but if somebody to the next stage of, of research and work, but if somebody would come up to me and say, hey, we've got a deal for you, I, I would definitely consider that. So you're saying there's a chance. Right. I like it. Because you still seem yeah. young and energetic, just like me. And now we get to the pièce de résistance because everything that your mother and father trained you for. What's your beautiful mother's name, by the way? We know about Morris Moishka. Oh yeah. What's your mom's name? It's it's Ruth. Ruth. Talk about your biblical names. The Book of Ruth. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God! Exactly. I was in Vegas, honestly, about to see the Love Show, and I got the call. Nobody wants that. My mother had died, and I went to a synagogue oh, in I'm Vegas, sorry. and it was Shabuot. And it was closed for the Jewish holiday, as some synagogues are. And I can laugh uh, about it because it's 15 years ago. But I realized that on Shavuot, you read the book of Ruth. Am I right? And I like yeah, it yeah, that's right, because yeah. it's so short. It's about the righteous convert, Ruth. And God bless your mother, Ruth. And then she gets a kick out of your fame. And I did have a little glimpse of this because when I had my microphone cut, at my Trump radio station, as I kept trying to tell the uh, truth about Trump, I was suddenly in the Dredge Report and people were calling me. You had that experience, but you've got a whole Wikipedia page because you've had so many <laughs> successes. Tell us about Mike Lindell, when you first became aware of him, and do you want to apologize for voting for Donald Trump in 2020? <laughs> You know, I don't know. You know, I'm happy to talk about that, and I do. I wrote an article on LinkedIn uh, before the 2016 election, 
and it's titled something like Trump is a nasty, mean-spirited, misogynistic person. And actually, the, the title got cut off if you search for it. The title gets cut off. So a lot of my uh, Democrat friends would uh, email me and said, I agree with you, Bob. Thanks for writing that. But they didn't actually read it. The rest of the title was, I'm voting for him anyway. And my thinking at the time was, I really did not like or trust Hillary Clinton, but the Democrats in Congress supported everything she did, even the questionable things. They just supported her unanimously. Whereas the Republicans, there were a lot of Republicans at the time that didn't like Trump. You know, there were a lot of uh, never Trump. I, I forgive you for 2016. I did the same thing. I still yeah. think Hillary was not great and possibly corrupt. I didn't like corruption. Of course, now if I had to do yeah. over, I'd do it. But 2020, Bob, what happened in 2020? He re had revealed himself so many ways by then. So here's the thing. I... I don't like Trump. I never have. I've, even before he ran for office, I had an article that, that talked about one of his businesses that I didn't like. Um, I, my wife and I used to watch Celebrity. Well, we used to watch Apprentice and then Celebrity Apprentice. But we watched it a lot of times because how irrational Trump was. But I have to tell you, look, I'm going to tell you a lot of his policies in his four years I did like. And... Then the Democrats can I just Biden, go back on one, can, can I just go yeah, back yeah. on one thing because Celebrity Apprentice sure. influenced me. I never watched this show. My old radio partner fell in love with Trump from The Apprentice and Celebrity Apprentice, but I didn't watch until my old buddy Geraldo Rivera was on, and I knew him from Sean Benet, oh, yeah, and yeah. I was at his wedding, and I really think the guy was cool, and he was outstanding on the show, and he barely lost. I thought he got chipped, but he got along with Trump, and then he vouched for Trump, and that meant a lot. And we're speaking on the day that he's quitting Fox News because he, too, is fed up, and we all get fed up at a right, certain right. point, and I cut that Jewish guy some slack, too. So back to you, yeah. all right? Yeah. 2020, so, so I like Charlottesville, didn't that get to you? No, it didn't, because I'll tell you why. And this is, you know, you're probably going to disagree with me about this. First of all, I think Trump is the most inarticulate person who's ever held the office of president. Um, but I know, I know Trump is not an anti-Semite, and he said it very poorly. But the thing is, I had friends who asked me to go to Charlotte for the protests. They were not people who were, who were anti-Semites, I and mean, some were Jewish. They were not people who were haters or KKK or neo-Nazis. There were a lot of people that I respected that went there. But then when the whole thing, when the neo-Nazis came and took over, that was a horrific thing. But none of them expected that. It was a unite the right rally. Like, I, I don't... Yeah. I mean... Okay, and, and, and on the, the whole subject of Trump, whether he's an anti-Semite, he will enable, mm -hmm. he enables anti-Semites. He told the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by, and you vote for him after that. Holy cow, the Proud Boys scare the crap out of me. Nick Fuentes and the Groypers oh, yeah, and absolutely. Yay look, and him having, anyway. You, well, this is what, look, I, I, I can't disagree with you there. I, I think that Trump says stupid things, and he tends to, 
he likes people who like him, regardless of their ideology. L- let me give you two examples, which I'm sure you're familiar with. One, of course, is Kanye West and Nick Fuentes. He invited them to dinner. Horribly stupid thing to do. Horribly stupid. And I don't think Ant- Trump is an anti-Semite. I think he just is so full of himself that he loves people who love him. We're going to have to agree but on the other to hand, disagree. He's, he's reaching out to a base, the base that showed up for him on January 6th. The Proud Boys... They committed an insurrection against America. He's going to pardon all these guys. I mean, at this point, you're not going to vote for him again. Are you thinking about that? No, well, no. No, I'm part of a group called No Labels. By the way, let me just add quickly, he Mm -hmm. also likes Gavin Newsom. I mean, I think Trump just likes people who like him, regardless of politics or ideology. And that's what scares me most about Trump, is that you know, he he doesn't care. He is not so much about any particular ideology. He'll vote the way that that people who like him want him to vote. You know, I used or to think that, policy. right? He's a cipher, and I thought maybe he'll be pro-choice. Maybe he'll uh, enact reasonable gun control. I don't even know, but we all tend to project these things. But at this point, I think I know who Trump is, and to me, he's an extension of Mike Lindell the guy you're taking down, let's get to that story because I want you to tell it and then at the end I'm going to ask you, what are the implications? Surely you've thought about that. You're a brilliant guy. Once you want to realize that Lindell's a con guy and that Trump had him in toward the end to try to hold on to power, you realize that Trump is the king of the con guys. He's Lindell writ large. So first, let me say, if I can put in a plug, I'm about to uh, publish a book about my experience called A A Conspiracy of Dunces. And I agree that Lindell, some of this comes out in my book, Lindell and Trump have very similar personalities in that they are very fanatical about certain causes, and they ignore facts to the contrary, and they want to remain in power. And I think that's why they are good friends, or if not good friends, at least supporters of each other. And I think, you know, if you read Lindell's autobiography, which I did in preparing for my lawsuit, but also preparing for my book, you know, he was a drug addict, an alcoholic, and a gambling addict. Before he cleaned himself up, he found Jesus, he found religion, and got the idea in his head that Trump was what God God wants him to support Trump. And so Lindell has made it his life's goal to use his money from his pillow company to keep Trump in office or get him back in office, and he'll do whatever it takes. But by the way, he's, he's a true believer from what I can tell. He, he believes religiously that Trump has to be president and it's kind of like, you know, in, in all religions, there's stuff that doesn't always make sense, but the true believers ignore the stuff that doesn't make sense. And that's what Lindell's doing. Well, thank you for reading that book so I didn't have to. So I'll accept that <laughs> because I do think there's a Christian component to all of this that I just can't understand. Can you? Well, you know, I I don't know. You know, I was surprised that evangelicals supported Trump because Trump is not a religious man, and he has violated uh, some of their principles, let me put it that way. Um, 
But somehow, look, Trump, I followed Trump a little bit. And if you follow him, you know that even though he's run his businesses into the ground, he always comes out of it with a lot of money and is able to convince people to invest in his next business. I envy that skill. I mean, I've been successful in businesses, and sometimes I can't get people to invest in my next one. And Trump can fail at business and yet get people to invest in his next business. And that's what he's doing with, the, with his election. I, I was going to say I'm not planning on voting for him. I work with a group called No Labels. It's bipartisan. And we have a mission right now that if, if, it, if Biden is the Democratic nominee and Trump is the Republican nominee, we're going to put up a moderate uh, counter that consists of a Republican and a Democrat running on the same ticket for president. Oy vey. Anyway, I don't like the yeah. idea. And if you want to see a brilliant takedown of no labels, watch Kyle Clark. He's the best uh, broadcaster, newscaster in Colorado, Nine News. He did a piece with one of your leaders. I think it's a plot by Trump to, again, siphon votes away from Joe Biden. He's going to try to win every which way because he can't get more votes in a one-on-one battle with Joe Biden. Nobody who uh, didn't vote for Trump before is going to say, hey, he's a great guy now. I don't even think he should be allowed to run, but we're not going to get bogged down here because it's like a great Vegas meal. God, my dad used to get copped because he gambled so much. We'd go to those gourmet rooms and, you know, sit there for about three hours and you had to reach in your wallet deep just to leave a nice tip. You know, holy cow, those were the days. And now we get to the main course. Go ahead. Wait, before we do that, let me just put in one good word for no labels. There have been these attacks on no labels. Mm -hmm. I've been with them for about three years now, uh, very closely associated with them. They were founded by members of Hillary's campaign team. They hate Donald Trump. Most of the people in the group are Democrats. They despise Donald Trump, and they have no intention of throwing the election to Donald Trump. The problem is Joe Biden has been doing such left-wing policies, and they don't believe he's competent to be president for another four years. So I I just, you know, that's a whole other topic, but no labels. You know, I've joined bipartisan groups I don't even, right. I just, I've been around just like you watching politics, and Joe Biden's no big, he's no big lefty. We've seen big lefties in our life. Biden is no big lefty. He, He just isn't. And really, don't you think politics comes down to this, Bob, as we try to protect our family and your mother and everything that America stands for, it comes down to you're either for Trump or you're against him. Isn't that kind of what it boils down to now? But I think with Biden in the mix, look, I think the Democrats have people that I could vote for, but none of them, you know, in the primaries, the ones that I could have voted for were out early. And they left. And I think Biden himself was never a lefty, and but his policies as president are You've got to lower your standards. Anyway, let's go to your area of expertise. Okay, let's talk. Sure. All right. This is one of the best stories ever. And I think it has a happier ending than you do, because I want Mike Lindell to make just enough money to pay you off, because you did a beautiful thing. Everybody... If I had a nickel for the times that blowhards on the radio say, 
I'll buy a steak dinner if somebody does this or that. And I'm always interested in looking up the law. I've been a lawyer for well over 40 years. I don't know the exact law, but you do. When there's a contract, it's offer, acceptance, contract, right? Isn't that the basic? Right. Well, it's even better than that. This case is even better than that. Mike Lindell had every cyber expert that he invited to a symposium sign a contract, a written contract. And so in order to see the data, I had to sign a contract which spelled out exactly what the rules were. And this was part of his undoing. You know, in my book um, that I'm writing, A Conspiracy of Dunces, uh, I thank him in the acknowledgments. I mean, it's really weird because if he hadn't offered the five million, I've been involved in stuff like this before. And if I prove it wrong, I just say, okay, well, I proved it wrong, but nobody cares. What am I going to do? But in this case, the reason I got all this attention is because he had a written contract which offered everyone $5 million. I met the criteria. He refused to offer it, so I took him to arbitration, and they decided I won. And if he hadn't offered the $5 million, I just would have shrugged it off, and nobody would have paid attention. Oh, boy, and you got further ammunition for your book, Conspiracy of Dunces, because Lindell yeah. wrote it all down for you. And Trump, yeah. he recorded everything. You know, all of his confessions about the classified documents, these guys are dunces. But most of us were vaguely aware of Mike Lindell. We knew he was a recovering coke addict. His ads demonstrate that he's sort of manic. He says, my pillows are great. Yeah. It's on Fox News. It's on Trump radio all the time. People had heard of him, but all of a sudden, he was in the inner sanctums of the White House toward the end with... Uh, yeah documents about martial law, and he's giving advice along with Sidney Powell and Jenna Ellis, who I know well. She's from Denver. She's a lawyer. She used to fill in for me. So we know these people, and all of a sudden, Mike Lindell is elevated, but it even got deeper when Trump would never give up the ship. He held this symposium, and it wasn't just you who responded from Nevada at that point, but from Mesa County. It's kind of high desert. I don't know if you've been to Grand Junction, yeah. Colorado, but Tina Peters, she and Shoshana Bishop, both of them tied to Lauren Boebert. They got a private plane that flew them up there. You probably saw Tina Peters and Shoshana on stage. Am I right? Yeah, well, this was that was towards the end of the symposium. And uh, so, I, yeah, and so I heard that she was there. Everybody was talking about her being there. But I got to tell you, at the very end of the symposium, I was busy finishing up my report for the five million dollars, and so I and also I got to tell you. So so let me tell you the symposium he put on. I got myself invited because I know people who know Lindell, and you had to be invited as a cyber expert. Right. You had to sign this contract, and friends were pushing me to go because they said you'll win five million, and I said or or you know you won't, and I said I can't win five million. Three days is not enough time to examine the data, whether it's true or false. Uh, and he wouldn't offer $5 million if he, if he if it wasn't at least a, a believable explanation that it was real. But my friends convinced me to go, so I went. And the first day was Mike Lindell on stage. There was no agenda. It was just him on stage the entire time talking like he does worse than the pillow commercials, because he's just going nonstop about how we have to save America and uh, you know, defeat the Democrats and defeat uh, Biden. 
And, now, now uh, as I recall, Chinese hacking. Yeah, as I recall, didn't he promise some big name guests who kind of failed to appear that first day, which is why he kind of panicked and made Tina Peters a star performer. It could be, but you know, it was unclear from the beginning who was going to be there. I think Steve Bannon showed up. I think um, Dennis Montgomery, the guy who gave him the fake data, who's got a long history of con of being accused of conning people. Uh, was supposed to show up and talk about how he got this data that showed the hacking, but he conveniently had to go to the hospital, which seems to be an excuse. Again, in my book, I write about this. I did some research. Every time he's been confronted to show up and explain where he got data from, either this or other data in the past, uh, he just suddenly gets ill and can't show up. Uh, but then, then Lindell would have people come up, and he, and they'd start talking, but he wouldn't introduce them. He'd say, now I've got this panel that's going to talk about Chinese hacking. And uh, I would watch, and I'm thinking, yeah, I don't know who these people are. And so it, it doesn't matter what they're saying. And how, many, and people, people how like, many people are around you? You're sitting in the audience, I imagine, with your laptop out. And did they give you something so went, to examine that first day? And then they kept adding to it, right? Yeah, so the first day I actually got a hot pink uh, sticker on my badge, which allowed me to go in. After I signed the agreement, they gave me my badge with a hot pink sticker, which allowed me to go into a back room with about 10 other cyber experts to examine the data. And they gave us the data, right, and every day they kept giving us, we're talking about tens of gigabytes or maybe 100 gigabytes. I think it was a total of 100 gigabytes of data almost. I mean, that's a huge amount of data. Uh, And everybody's back there. In the back rooms, the cyber experts are trying to go through it and find out what it is. Uh, and everybody agreed it was not what Lindell promised. It was not. It did not seem to be proof of hacking, but they didn't know what it was. I figured out what it was. And, and eventually, maybe everybody did. But everybody agreed it wasn't proof of hacking. But in the other side now, of the building... Now, wait a second. Are you, in, guys, you guys are all talking amongst each other, but kind of looking out of yes. the side of your eye. Wait a second. You're going to get the $5 million? No, I'm going to get it? I mean... Tell me the atmosphere. Well, I'm yeah, honestly, what happened was I was looking at it, and everybody's saying, this is not packet data. Packet, you know, packets are the chunks of data that go around the Internet. So, like, if you're watching a movie on the Internet, it's really little chunks of data that are going all over and being reassembled from, from the, the original source, you know, Amazon or Netflix. It's being reassembled at your computer into a movie or a Word document or an email. So we were looking for this packet data, and everybody said, this isn't packet data, and they're running all the tools that examine packet data. But the difference is, since I'm a forensic expert that works in court, I think this is where my experience comes in. When parties are forced to turn over data because of of a court order in a litigation, I don't trust that they're turning over what they tell me they're turning over. You know, I assume that it could be anything. So I started running a bunch of tool, other tools, including my tools on it. And just because I've been doing this, I've been programming since I was 13, I recognized the data and I said, hi, ah, I think you can do this transformation on it. And then I got a transformation. I looked at that. Interestingly enough, I showed it to one of the other experts. And I said, hey, do you know what this is? And he looked at it and said, no. And then he went back to what he was doing. And then it suddenly hit me that this was a word processor document. And so I opened it up in Microsoft Word, and it was just a bunch of gibberish, perfectly formatted gibberish that somebody had typed into a word processing document. 
And then they'd done these transformations to look at it as something really complex when it wasn't. Right. He just tried to overwhelm you with nonsense, right? Now, now what I honestly think, I'm, I'm, almost, I'm almost entirely certain of this, he got this data from a guy named Dennis Montgomery, who has a history of, of conning people, or being accused of conning people, at least. He's been taken to court numerous times. I think Montgomery knew that Lindell was addicted to Trump being president and said, I've got this data. Lindell paid him $1.5 million for it, it turns out. That came out at arbitration. And Lindell wanted so badly to believe it that he believed it. And, and he, he probably, he, and he has no means to really research it himself. He's kind of an ignoramus. He wouldn't know the first Well, he foot. even says, the crazy thing is at, at the hearing, at the arbitration hearing, he would start out, by the way, his lawyers could not, you would hate him as a client. His lawyers could not stop him from talking. And, his, and so we would I, ask I, him. I dislike, what is, I dislike him as a non-client, but keep going. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, you know, my lawyer, brilliant guy, uh, Brian Glasser, my other lawyer was Carrie Joshi. I, I want to commend them. They're brilliant. And I, I, I meet a lot of lawyers who are not very good, and they are among the top. So, uh, but Brian Glasser, or Bailing Glasser, was, uh, you know, all he had to do, or maybe it was Carrie Joshi, who was also at Bailing Glasser, said to Lindell, you know, tell us about the data. And he'd start off talking about, well, I'm not a cyber guy. My cyber guys tell me it's hacking. I don't know anything about it, but I trust them. They're brilliant. And he'd go on and on and on. And by the end, he's nearly yelling about, you know, China is hacking into our computers and I have the proof and why doesn't anybody believe me? And he just came across as raving. Uh, and you know, and, and when, there, when, I, when he gets confronted with uh, hey, we printed it out. It's old word processing nonsense. You got sold the bill of goods. Aren't you pissed? Don't you see what you're doing, Mike? I right, mean, is it ever right. put in his face like that? What does he say? Happened was uh, uh, one of the guys working for him, a guy named Josh Merritt. He's been written up. Josh has really suffered the brunt of this. Josh is a ex-military, strong Republican, a Trump supporter. And he was hired by Lindell as part of his team. And he told Lindell the data is bogus. And Lindell fired him and put a two-hour rant on the Internet that, saying that Josh Merritt was a traitor to our country. And now Josh can't find work. Oh, my God. And you realize yeah. Trump does the same thing with lawyers. He just yeah, waits well, till he gets a lawyer who will make up something like Eastman or Jenna Ellis, and he'll say, that's the truth. It sounds like that conspiracy of dunces. Good title. I'm starting to get it. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Yeah, I mean, I've seen Trump do that on, on uh, The Apprentice. He would do that. That's what was fascinating. But why I was, you know, look, I, again, I was nervous about having him as president. If, they, if the Democrats had run anybody but Hillary Clinton, I probably would have put a Democrat. And then they ran Joe Biden. Anyway, we won't. And then Joe Biden, you yeah, too yeah. Much. He's okay. He's a little old, but so is your mother. <laughs> and I like her. Anyway, um, so if, if people should read the Politico piece because it's so well written. But to sum it up, Thank you. the first day you realized this was a con game. And you published, you copyrighted it, fearful that somebody yeah, would yeah, beat yeah. you to do it. Then he gave out further data the next two days, and you had to supplement your work. But 
the bottom line is once you discovered that part of it was complete nonsense, can you then conclude all of it is nonsense? Well, you know, he kept throwing more data at us. It was really interesting. One part of that was there were 503 files that we got on day two that were about, I think, like 70 gigabytes. And that's when I thought, okay, this is the game he's playing. I can't win because every time I analyze files, he's showing me even more files. And I got a, I had this eureka moment on the third day. I looked at the 503 files and realized that they had all been modified within days before the uh, symposium. So my argument was they can't be data about the election if they were modified just a few days ago. And so I put that into the report and submitted the report. What's really interesting, and again, this is in my book, a lot of stuff came out. At, when, we, when, we, when my lawyers sent a letter to him saying that we were going to file for arbitration as required in his written contract that I signed, that we were going to file for arbitration uh, and we have all the proof, they came back, his lawyers at the time, who, who ended up quitting and they hired a new lawyer, but the lawyers at the time sent us back a letter that said, well, some of those files, like those 503 files, weren't part of the challenge. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm sure you know this, when somebody writes to you and says you're going to be sued, the only response is that we're right, you're wrong, we'll see you in court. Mm-hmm. But you don't you don't give any concrete information that that bears on the the conflict. But they put in writing that those 503 files were not part of the challenge that I you know for the five million, and then they answered that in the interrogatories, which as you know are the questions that we officially ask them and they answer under oath. And I thought to myself. Those 503 files were the files I was most concerned about because they gave them to us. There's no time to analyze 70 gigabytes of data. So I used the dates of the the modification dates of the files, and I thought they're going to come back and say, well, okay, just because they were modified didn't mean they weren't originally from the election. And instead, in their initial response to me, they threw out those files. The, The weakest part of my case, they threw out. And at that point, I knew I I had to win. Right. But you still don't have a great expectation of getting the money. And maybe you are right. I mean, Lindell's getting sued every which way, including you talked about your bright lawyers. I was speaking with uh, Brad Claver, who works for Eric Coomer, who's suing a bunch of people, Lindell, Trump, Rudy Giuliani, people, uh, Sidney Powell, KNUS, Randy Corcoran, all for defamation, chased him out of Denver. And he said uh, he was in touch with your lawyers because they're so good. And they know stuff yeah. about Lindell. Did you know that? Or am I giving you new info? Yeah, actually, he he contacted me also. Um, I had a very brief conversation with him. And look, there's, you know, you look at all the people you just named. I I think it's fascinating. And I hope I've you know, my book brings this out is that, and I think it happens on, on both sides of the aisle and in a lot of things. And, you know, as, as an expert witness, I see this all the time. People become so convinced in their infallibility or, or that they're going, to, or that the means justify the ends, that they won't, they're not smart about what they do in between. They go into court where they make public statements that are so ridiculous and they don't realize, hmm, 
that's going to come back to bite me if I ever get challenged on it. And you've got people like Sidney Powell. I understand Sidney Powell is a really bright attorney. I mean, what happened to her? She made public statements that were ridiculous, and now she's fighting for her career and her financial future, I think. I don't know what happened to her. Maybe she lived in San Francisco. I mean, it, it could be the yeah. phenomenons that have affected a lot of people. But ultimately, you don't turn your city over to the mob. And a lot of good people went along with the Klan 100 years ago in Denver. Yeah. My yeah. grandfather trying to make a living as a lawyer. He couldn't even go to court because the Klan judges were waiting. But we cast that wow. off. Hopefully, we'll do that with MAGA. And guys like you will lead the way. Now, once you realize that Lindell is a hustle, a con artist, don't you see that Trump is the same? I mean, he's one of your dunces. And you already said you would never vote for him again. And uh, I'm not going to, you know, do any kind of uh, what they call that in Spain, inquisition. That part's over. But don't you see some... Don't you see some fascism here, Bob? Don't you see some dangers to our people, others, Jews? I do, which, which is why, which is why, um, you know, and, and we can, you know, we don't have to get into this now, but why I'm working with no labels. I really think that they are, they have Democrats and Republicans. They do not want to throw. Boy, if I mean, if they thought they were throwing the the election to Trump, they would not do it. But you know, the example is uh, Ross Perot allegedly through the election to um, Clinton, and uh, what's his name, the guy? Um, it was it was uh, Clinton versus uh, Dole, isn't it? You know, nineteen ninety six, Clinton uh, well, against no, it was George. It was George Herbert Walker Bush, yeah. right? Right. And Perot, right. Perot got almost twenty percent, and those were just different times, as we've already talked about. I mean, Clinton was uh, the leadership council of the Democrats, which was kind of the right wing end of the Democrat Party. He came from Arkansas, and 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 yeah. then oh, and yeah. then George Herbert Walker Bush was kind of a liberal Republican. The differences were not that profound like they are right now. Arlen Specter would bounce around between being a Republican and a Democrat. Joe Lieberman was the kind of guy, he's one of these no-labels guys. Yeah, yeah. But that, that that train has left the station. Same thing with no-labels. God bless you for trying to defeat Trump if that's what you're going to do. But that's the only way any sane person can get behind no-labels now, I think. Well, and I think that you know, no-labels can only succeed if they have candidates who appeal to the independents and the moderates in both parties. Um, and that's the intent. You know, you can argue about whether that's actually going to happen or work, but I, I can tell you for sure that is the absolute intent. And, uh, you know, I hope it succeeds because I, I really don't want Trump or Biden uh, in office. That's well, what, what do you see? You're a super smart guy. I really appreciate your time. But just between a couple of Jews and a, who have experience and all the people who might be listening... I do worry for the Jewish people because we've seen this play before, you know, whether it be the Klan or other fascist movements. Would you agree that fascism, the thing that your dad fought against in World War II, that came from the right, uh, correct? I well, mean, see, I'd argue about that because the, 
the Nazis actually were the Socialist Party, yeah, you know, the National was, Socialist that, Party. You, you got to be smarter than that, Bob, because that's just nomenclature, and socialism didn't mean that sort of thing. And they were fighting the communists, and I don't like communists, but it was they came from the right, and and here in Colorado, we've had these educational battles, and. I mean, this is my field of study. I would defer to you on computer stuff, but really okay. fascism is horrible. So is communism. But fascism came from Mussolini, who was another media guy. Hitler, of course. That was fascism. And we can't abide that in America. What about the fact of your Jewish faith? I was so impressed by that, that picture of you and Carrie in that article about why uh, you made that move from Northern California oh, yeah, yeah. to suburban Vegas made a lot of sense to me. And uh, I like your fighting spirit. Rather than just living your house afraid and not going out, you're part of a lively community out there. Ken O'Hara, I'm proud of you. But as you've gone through this whole Lindell thing, has your faith informed you? Does Judaism work for you? You have that nice picture of you with the talis on. It seems like it's important to you. I think it, you know, it definitely is. My wife and I are both, uh, we're conservative, you know, and the conservative, your viewers may or may not know, it's kind of more, the more moderate, it's called conservative, but it's more moderate Judaism. I'm sure you're, you know about that. Yes, it's it's Uh, not reformed, but it's not. Uh, firm. It's not uh, orthodox. It's it's not ultra orthodox right. with the uh, garb that you would expect from somebody teaching at a yeshiva, something like that. Right, and and you know one thing I'll tell you that. So I am informed by my Judaism. I am friendly with a lot of with some conservative rabbis and also some orthodox rabbis, and I go to all of them uh, for you know, sometimes advice, sometimes for discussion, because I think it's important. My rabbi here in Las Vegas, we have a great relationship. He's a Democrat, he's pro-Israel, and we have great conversations. And I think, you know, when I was in California, I had some rabbis uh, who, one was a moderate Republican, we got along great. Another was a moderate liberal and a Democrat, and uh, we got along great. But I hate to say it, you know, there were rabbis that I met in California who wouldn't even talk to me because of my politics. And I think that's part of what's wrong with America. And, and a rabbi should talk to anybody, um, you know, regardless of their politics. I know, politics. but, these, but these, it, are, these are fraud times. And, and I agree yeah, with you. I know, and uh, I've been on both sides of this. But you, you're now at the point where you came on my air and said you're not going to vote for Trump. And so that's a step that probably those rabbis had made, and they were waiting for you to make. And anybody who gets well, up the Trump train, yeah, go ahead. They, they didn't. Uh, one of them in particular had a problem with me voting for George W. Bush. Um, so it started back then. And uh, good point, fair point. And that's kind of what drives people. Dennis Prager, I got to know that guy a little bit, California guy. Seems sort of normal. I never thought he would give in to a guy like Trump, but darned if he hasn't now. And he advertises his Jewishness. And obviously the ultra-Orthodox still kind of stand by Trump. And uh, that's a topic for another day. But I'm interested in the media reaction to you, Bob Seidman. 
I bet a lot of people mm-hmm. don't go into your background like this, right? And understand uh, all yeah. the depth of experience you brought to this Lindell incident. You're a fascinating guy, but in this hustle-bustle world, people don't get to know you, right? You know, this is the most in-depth interview I've had for sure, and I appreciate the research you did on my background. Well, I just uh, wonder what you've made of your media opportunities. I mean, here you are, a Republican, calling bullshit on Lindell and this claim, the big lie that led to January 6th. Have you been surprised at who offers you an opportunity? You've been on CNN, et cetera. But has anybody from the Trump world said, hey, come on, we'll give you a chance? For example, Fox News or what is it, One America, any of those conservative outlets even give you a chance? So I, I have not, and it's disappointing, I've not been interviewed by any conservative outlets that I'm aware of. I mean, not Fox. I was on MSNBC and CNN and NPR. Uh, look, Fox just settled their their lawsuit with Dominion, and I have a feeling they don't even want to bring up voting machines because they're scared of it, um, which is unfortunate. But let me tell you a good a good story. I think uh, the week the weekend after I was supposed to, the weekend after I won officially won the uh, the arbitration the five million dollar award when it came out. I think it was like two days later. I was scheduled to go down to Los Angeles to go to a conservative um, conference run by a good friend of mine. And uh, I, I can say it's the American Freedom Alliance run by Karen Sigamund. Karen and I have known each other for years, and I told her as soon as I won, I told her, and she was thrilled that I had won. And I said to her, what's going to happen at your conference? Are people going to be upset with me? And she said, well, you know, I'll defend you if you come. You're a great guy. I know you spoke the truth, and that's important. So I went down there, and... Most people did, had heard of me but didn't recognize me. They didn't know what I looked like. And I didn't say anything for a while. And there were big, big names there um, at this conference. When I say that big researchers, you know, Republican think sure. tanks, uh, political advisors. And so I started telling people that I was the guy. And almost every one of them enthusiastically shook my hand and said, thank you, because the truth is the most important thing. And there were a few people there when I told them, they were upset with me. They said, why did you do that? And I explained to them what was going on, that, you know, this is just, look, this doesn't help Republicans or Democrats, and it doesn't help our country to be spreading lies. And after I talked to people, all of them thanked me for what I'd done. And so I think when people understand what I've done, I, I hope people on the left and the right just appreciate that Look, I didn't really save democracy. I, that was kind of a tongue-in-cheek because people told me that. I got emails from people saying, you saved democracy. I didn't do that, but I do think that I think Republicans have to expose Republican myths and Democrats have to expose Democrat myths. But holy cow, Hugh Hewitt is from L.A. Why haven't you been on his show? Dennis Prager is in L.A. He's a Jewish guy. Why doesn't he have you on? And we know, because that's where their bread gets buttered. And that's the sad thing. And the other thing that makes me realize you're really a rich guy, and you definitely make at least eight fifty an hour, because for the benefit of our audience, if you are fortunate enough to collect that $5 million, you will get interest on top of it and hopefully pay your lawyers too, but the rest of it, 
you've designated for charity or some good cause? Tell everybody about that. Yeah, I've been talking to people already, and I'm familiar with uh, groups that investigate voter fraud and try to ensure voter integrity. And I think whether you're on the left or the right, you want to know. Look, the people on the right think that the 2020 election was fraudulent, and they want an investigation. But people on the left should should want an investigation, too, to say, look, you know, or, or at least checks and balances in place so that everybody who goes and casts their votes knows that it's going to be secure. Everyone should want that. So I want to find a nonpartisan group that's going to do that and donate at least some of the money uh, to that. I've got to pay my lawyers. I actually had to pay expenses. But one other thing I'll add to that is, you know, I, I do, uh, I live very comfortably and I'm very happy about that. And I remember somebody once, when I was in college, somebody gave a lecture and said, why do you need more than a few million dollars? How many shoes do you need or, or yachts do you need to buy? Or, But my response was, I'm not spending my money. I know a lot of, you know, rich people do on yachts and, and fancy cars and, and things like that. Every dollar that I have that doesn't go to support me in a comfortable lifestyle goes to nonprofits because I want to be able to change the world. That That's why I want to make money. Uh, now you're sounding like a big lip, and we're going to agree on that. We all want <laughs> fair voting, and you'll give me an amen, which is amen for you non-Jews out there, <laughs> when I say we should not change voting laws based on Mike Lindell or Donald Trump bullshit, right? We could stipulate to sure. that, right? God, yes, I, absolutely. I, I love the chance to talk to you, Bob. Maybe we can get together when I go to Vegas. Do you ever get to Colorado? Do you know anything about our state? You know, I haven't been there in a while. So these days I mostly travel on business. I just, you know, as I've become older, my wife and I are just comfortable. We live in a nice house. It's just quiet. And so I go on business trips. So if I ever have business in Colorado, I will definitely let you know. All right. But if you come to Vegas, you know, let me know if you're in Vegas and, uh, We'll get together. Most definitely, Bob. Really respect you. Thanks for your time, and good luck getting that $5 million out of Mike Lindell because you proved Mike wrong, just like he said. Holy <laughs> yeah. cow. Way yeah. to go. All right? Thanks, Craig. Thanks for having All me. Right. I really enjoyed this. My pleasure. Shabbat shalom. Oh, Shabbat shalom. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor, Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the, the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? 
These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right, and if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to LLC.com And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Hey, everybody, for all of your legal needs, why not start with me? 734-7156-303-734-7156. I've been practicing law in Colorado for over 42 years, and I know a lot of people. And if I can't do right by you, I can steer you in the right direction. My number, 303-734-7156. Ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims, a voice for people with legal difficulties. Hi, Craig. Hi, Troubadour. How's the East Coast? Well, right now, you know, the weather's good, but I'm looking at very smoky atmosphere now. We're down on the Long Island uh, shore of Connecticut, actually, Long Island Sound. And um, it's it's very gray, and it's because of the Canadian smoke. Well, to everybody who's out there, I feel bad for you. Colorado has a lot of lightning and thunder, but I'm more worried about what's going on in Ukraine with Vladimir Putin almost a mutiny against him. He seems to still hold power like a guy I know in a song by Dave Gunders called Eddie Don't Quit. Tell Mm. us how that song goes together. Well, that was a Trump-inspired song. You know, what what makes a person who's who's so uh, self-centered and will go to any lengths in order to bolster themselves and improve their own standing in the world? Um, I wondered about what kind of childhood someone like that might have who they're proving themselves to and so i um and so eddie don't quit is is about a young man whose father was not around didn't support him and he felt the need to prove himself to the world and uh to grave consequences yes and you know that i think putin and trump are joined at the hip or joined at the wallet or joined at dirty secrets they each back each other i don't care what dan capitalist or anybody else lies about people say the Mueller report exonerated trump that's bullshit it said one they tried to obstruct us like crazy 
Two, we know that the Russians tried to get Trump elected. Even Republicans in the Senate signed on to that, Marco Rubio and others. But they couldn't yeah. prove a direct connection, which next week I'm going to prove with some tapes of Roger Stone. Because I think he and Paul Manafort were in the middle of it. You know, those guys were partners. They were. They had a firm together. They weren't lawyers. They were lobbyists. And I got to talk to Roger Stone. And we'll hear that next week. Although Eddie Don't Quit has that memorable lyric, rolling like a stone man. I love that. Right. Yeah. It's sort of like a bulldozer. It doesn't matter who gets in your way or how many people get hurt. And that's what's happening with Trump. Oh, my gosh. I know you're traveling. Have you followed the latest? No, probably not, Craig. What? Tell me. Uh, Everybody's no. flipping. Mark Meadows flipped, and then Pence went in and talked about the pressure campaign against him. So who did that put on the hot Pence seat? Was, Rudy? I thought Pence was backing, was backing Trump and, um, in saying that this was basically the, uh, you know, the, 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 the well, basically that it was a witch hunt. I don't know if he used those words, but. Well, yeah, um, he, he says the things about that classified documents thing, but he has to tell the truth right. is his God, hopefully, and his mother are making him tell the truth once he takes an oath. He is a lawyer, too. And the guy, Trump either called him a sissy or a pussy or a wussy because he wouldn't follow the Jenna Ellis and John Eastman advice to uh, obstruct Congress. That's a crime sure. right there. Plus, this false elector scheme. It's all going to come out. Maybe I'm fantasizing about Jack Smith, but I really put my faith in the legal system. It's slow, but eventually it happens. And Donald yes. Trump has twice had to appear in court and keep his mouth shut because he's not in charge there. You know what I mean? It's such that a different thing. Oh, boy. <laughs> it must be difficult for him to sit and keep his mouth shut. You know who can't talk on box anymore? My buddy Geraldo. He's done now. And Uh I knew it would come. He probably negotiated a good buyout, but he turned against Trump and he's not welcome anymore. I know that feeling. So, Right. You know that feeling. You've had that experience. Well, there's a lot of people whose careers have been disturbed or ruined by Trump. And, you know, he doesn't care. Well, I'm an active lawyer. Geraldo, I think, is inactive, but he could activate his law license because I'm telling you all these Supreme Court rulings, like on affirmative action and on uh, designing a wedding website, 303 Creative, all these things about whether there still can be consideration of race or what's a sincerely held belief to turn down service I mean, have you ever thought to turn down service because of the gender or sexuality of one of your customers? Anyway, all I'm saying is that I'm in the right profession because lawyers are going to be arguing about this shit for the next 10 years. Do you know what I mean? And getting paid to do it. Yeah. Anyway, you are on the East Coast. Let's just talk about Eddie Don't Quit. Do you want to credit anybody else on this song or is it? All so these are the girls, the girls, both my daughters uh, are on this one doing the doo doo doo, doing the doo wop stuff, and uh, I, I think um, I, 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 having not listened to it for a while, Craig, I, I'm not sure who the instrument, what the instrumentation is, but uh, all right, well, you've I got would, good hunches, yeah. No, it's a great yeah. song. It rocks. We're gonna play it 
but just off your gut, understanding you both produced this new album called Connected, and you are Mr. Oblivious, and that benefits you. What's going to happen to Vladimir Putin? Will he survive this summer of consequences? And while you're at it, what about his accomplice, Donald Trump? Well, those are big questions I don't know if I have any answer to. I mean, Putin, it was good to see this guy. Um, pr- pr- um, Prigozhin. Prigozhin, yeah. I mean, it was good to see his power challenged. And just because to see a crack in the wall, I mean, Putin has, a, has had such, you know, un, um, unchallenged platform. I mean, authority. He's an authoritarian, yes. right? Yeah. And I mean, to see even if it's a even if it's a small crack, whether whether this is something that uh, is just the beginning or not, I don't know. And the other thing is, Greg, I don't even know whether uh, it's necessarily a good thing. Um, who knows what can happen? We've seen problems right. in the past, right? With Saddam and everything, what can happen when a country's leader is deposed, if that happens? You know, there's a, there's a vacuum and you don't really know how it's going to be filled and whether it's going to be good for their country or the world. So well, I don't know. I mean, I think it would be, it would be great to see Putin, in my, in my opinion, it would be great to see him undermined because of the war, because someone else could come in potentially and say we're getting out of ukraine that would be the best thing i agree and i'm just an old prosecutor but i think a lot of these things can be resolved by using good common sense of an old state prosecutor say you have the head of a criminal gang and he's committed crimes serious crimes violent crimes and you can arrest him and incarcerate him you can't worry about who comes up next You're going to have to take care of that next guy next. So I would just present the case against Putin. And uh, it's just not all that rational. Yeah, no, and I'm with you on that. And Trump, whether whether it it is the uh, there are going to be some consequences for him, whether it's the consequence of jail time or not. But would would either of those guys submit to consequences, Putin or Trump? I don't see it. That's why I love this song for this week. Eddie, don't quit. I mean, well, is Eddie ever going to put his hands behind himself? And he self-destructs. Mm-hmm. Eddie self-destructs, and so and as as will Trump. You know, whether he goes to jail or some other fashion or other fashion, he'll 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 go down. Um, and it, you know, and it it uh, it won't in infamy. It won't be pretty. There you go. Like. My opinion is that that if that Trump, I think Trump should be given community service. I think it would be great. Anything that would that would put him uh, in his place, cleaning uh, toilets at McDonald's. Yeah, there we go. Something like that. Along, I I see him walking along the highway there near Miralago in an orange suit. (laughs) (laughs) Go with his hair. (laughs) I don't think they'll let him use the hair dye anymore. Anyway, here's the great song by our troubadour. It could be called Donnie Don't Quit. It could be called Vladdy Don't Quit. But yeah. he named it Eddie Don't Quit. Our troubadour, Dave Gunders. It's a great one. Thanks, troubadour. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thanks, Craig.
man He's taking his time Working on a Sunday He's gonna be the man Do it on his own He don't ask for help Dad is on the road Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show, but more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer, and I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. 
And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if, you're, if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep, and I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887, or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. Okay, here's the thing. You've been hurt. Maybe, God forbid, someone's been killed. You don't know what to do. If it happened in Colorado, please get a hold of me. Check out my website, craigscoloradolaw.com. craigscoloradolaw.com because I have four decades of experience. Sadly, I've helped a lot of people who have been hurt terribly through no fault of their own. 303-734-7156. Please call Craig. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. 303-734-7156. Hey, now, I told you this was going to be a great show, and I think I delivered. Thank you, Troubadour. Eddie Don't Quit is a wonderful song. Every damn show that we play it, I think this is the third time. But it's got great lyrics, and it's got Rolling Like a Stone Man. And next week, we're going to talk about Roger Stone, who I interviewed one time. My gosh, what he said to me. Thank you, Bob Seidman. What a great guy. Candid discussion, smart, accomplished, and finally off the Trump train. Thanks for taking down Mike Lindell and exposing yet another con job aspect of these bad guys, this mobster-type carnival barker named Donald J. Trump, who is bent on ruining our country, but we won't let him. Tell a friend, please subscribe, five stars if you can, on Apple. I like that. We're on YouTube, too. Thanks. Until next week, happy 4th of July, happy birthday, America, many more. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.